0: Have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 1. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 3 this morning. Uh, Hebrews is in the New Testament towards the end, right before uh, 1 Peter, right after Philemon, book of Hebrews. We're going to be beginning a new sermon series on the book of Hebrews. It's exciting for me. I've never preached a sermon series before. So, I'm excited to do this. Um, let's begin by reading the word of God this morning. Hebrews chapter one, verses one through three. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your word, that You would reveal Yourself to us. It's a tremendous thought, Father. I pray that You would bless the preaching of the Word this morning, and that all who hear it would be encouraged and strengthened in their faith. That if there are any among us who hear your Word this morning who have not yet put their hope and trust in Jesus Christ, that they would do so this morning. And I pray, Father, that you would use me as a faithful mouthpiece to bring your Word to your people, to the praise and glory of your great and holy name. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, as I said this morning, we begin a new sermon series on the book of Hebrews. And Hebrews is, I think, probably my favorite book of the New Testament. And the reason for that is I find Hebrews to be remarkable in its use of the Old Testament. The book of Hebrews reminds us that the entire Bible... Not just the New Testament, not just those words that are sometimes printed in red in your Bible, but the whole Bible is about Jesus Christ. I think that we live in an age that doesn't quite know what to do with the Old Testament. Some folks, like the popular evangelical Pastor Andy Stanley, tell us that we need to detach our Christian faith from the Old Testament. Some folks will say that the Old Testament is a book that deals with God and the nation of Israel, whereas we, the church, we don't really come into the picture until the New Testament. Some people just see the Old Testament as a bunch of stories of Bible heroes, David and Daniel and Samson and Noah and so on. Some people like the second century heretic Marcion believe the Old Testament is really about a different God than the God of the New Testament. That the Old Testament is all about a book of a God who is wrathful. And the New Testament is presenting to us a God of grace in the person of Jesus Christ. That the New Testament is giving us a different God, a God of love and mercy and and, and patience. And, and well, to to that, I would just say that in the Old Testament, there is plenty of God's love and grace, and mercy. And in the New Testament, there's plenty of God's wrath. The book of Revelation speaks of the second coming of Jesus Christ in judgment and speaks of the wrath of the Lamb. Well, The author of Hebrews, and we're not sure who the author actually was, uh, knew how to understand the Old Testament. He knew that the Old Testament was about Jesus Christ. But in his day... People were confused about the Old Testament as well. People were missing the point of the Old Testament, especially early Christian converts who converted from Judaism. You see, at that time, at the time that this book was written, which is somewhere around 64 AD, Christians were going through great persecution. And for Jews, who converted from Judaism to Christianity, this is something they weren't used to seeing. Uh, When they were Jews, they enjoyed some level of protection and privilege from the Roman Empire. Now that they were Christians, they were facing imprisonment, uh, brutal deaths, and other forms of persecution, not just from the Romans, but also from other Jews who did not recognize Jesus Christ to be the Messiah. And naturally, these early Jewish Christians were tempted with the idea of maybe we should go back. Maybe we should go back to Judaism. When we were practicing Judaism, we did not have these problems. And so the author of Hebrews who wrote this book, and we call it a book, we call it an epistle, a letter to the Hebrews, really it's a sermon. Um, this was probably a sermon that whoever the author was actually preached, which means that the book of Hebrews is probably the earliest Christian sermon that we have in completion. It's a sermon many believe, uh, to be on Psalm 110. So I guess, uh, I could have just said our scripture text is from Psalm 110 this morning and then just read the entire book of Hebrews for the sermon, but that, that's not any fun. The point of the sermon of Hebrews is to encourage these Jewish Christians to not go back to Judaism. And the author does this he encourages these Christians to not go back by showing uh, his hearers and his readers that Jesus is above all that there is none like Jesus His point in preaching uh, his sermon was to remind the Jewish Christians in his day and all of God's people throughout the ages that everything in everything at the Old Testament wrote about, was pointing towards Jesus Christ. Jesus is better than the angels. Jesus is the better prophet. Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus is the better temple or the better tabernacle. Jesus is the better sacrifice. Jesus is the better priest. And so because Jesus is better, because He is the fulfillment of everything that the Old Testament was pointing towards, his plea to these Jewish Christians is don't go back. Don't go back to Judaism. It was all types and shadows. It was all foreshadowing Jesus Christ. So now that the substance, the fulfillment has come, don't return to types and shadows. So he begins this sermon with those famous words, long ago, At many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. Now I almost made that first one and a half verses uh, the entire sermon because it's such a rich statement. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. What the preacher of Hebrews has in mind here when he says, by the prophets, is not simply uh Moses or Samuel or uh Ezekiel or Elijah speaking to the people of Israel, but really what he has in mind is the entire Old Testament Scriptures. He's saying that God spoke to his people through the entire written record of the Old Testament, but in these last days, which isn't a reference to end times or anything like that, But rather, it's a statement that our era, the Christian era, if you will, is an era of fulfillment. Uh, In those days, when God spoke to his people through the prophets, through the scriptures of the Old Testament, it was an unfulfilled scripture. But in these last days, it is fulfilled. Jesus, the Messiah, has come. We live in the age of fulfillment Everything the Old Testament pointed towards has now been fulfilled in Christ. And this opening statement of Hebrews really sets the stage for the entire book. Again, why go back to types and shadows? Why go back to the Jewish religion when in Jesus Christ we have the fulfillment? Why go back to shadows when we have the substance? Why go back to the religion of the prophets of the Old Testament when what That all was pointing towards has been fulfilled and revealed and revealed in the coming of Jesus Christ. You know, it'd be like sitting down at a table in a restaurant and uh, this restaurant would have a picture of all the food in their menus as many restaurants have and you look at those pictures and your mouth starts to water and you start to really get the urge to eat some of this food and the waiter or waitress comes, takes your order, And you're getting hungrier and hungrier, and then your food comes. And it looks even better than what the picture on the menu looked like. And and when the food comes, you push it aside, and you go back to staring at those pictures in the menu. You would rather have a picture, a foreshadowing, rather than the substance itself, and it doesn't make sense. And so the point of this opening statement is Christ is a better, a fuller revelation than what the prophets presented. Jesus is a fuller revelation than the whole of the Old Testament. Now that doesn't mean that we don't need the Old Testament. We do need it. It's the Word of God. Because the Old Testament gives us a background. It gives us a context in which we are to understand The work of Jesus Christ. How could we, for example, understand Christ's life of perfect obedience if we did not have the revelation of God's law given to us? How could we understand what it means that Christ is the better temple if we didn't have all the Old Testament writings concerning the temple? How could we understand Christ's sacrifice for sins on the cross if we did not have in the Old Testament detailed descriptions of the sacrificial system. The Old Testament gives us a grand, rich picture of the nature and personhood of God, of the covenant faithfulness of God, of His plan of salvation, a background from which we can understand the person, the life, and the work of the coming Messiah. We need the Old Testament there's not a single doctrine in the New Testament which isn't laid out in some form or another in the Old Testament. And so Hebrews' point is not that we don't need the Old Testament. Rather, it's that in Jesus Christ we fully understand and grasp what the Old Testament is really about. St. Augustine uh, the fourth-century church father said it like this: The new is concealed in the old, and what he meant by that is that uh, in the New Testament, uh, or what is in the New Testament, is indeed there in the Old Testament, but it's hidden, it's veiled to some extent. And then Augustine goes on: The old is in the new revealed meaning that what is veiled, what is only shadows in the Old Testament, is fully revealed in the New Testament in light of Jesus Christ. Here's the main idea, I think, of what the author of Hebrews is getting at with these first few verses. Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, is the complete and full revelation of the invisible God to us, His people. He is the image of the invisible God. If we are to see and know God, we only need to see and know Jesus Christ, the one who is supreme, the one who is over and above all things in heaven and earth, the one whom the Father has appointed heir over all things, the one whom through all things have been created, Jesus is the full revelation of God to us. And to drive this point home, the author of Hebrews says in verse 3 that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. I want us to look at those two phrases. The radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. What does it mean that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God? in, In Greek, the word radiance can have two different meanings. One, it can mean a shining brilliantly from a source of light. Or, it can mean a reflecting of a source of light. Do you see the difference between those two definitions? Shining brilliantly from a source or shining as in a reflection from a source. There are some Bible translations that do use the word reflection instead of radiance there. That Jesus is the reflection of the glory of God. And I think that is a a terrible translation. Pastor Kent Hughes says, there's a vast difference between the two words, radiance and reflection. As different as the function of our solar systems, sun and moon. The moon reflects light, whereas the sun radiates light Because it is its source. Jesus does not simply reflect God's glory. He is part of it. That's what the author of Hebrews is saying here. Jesus is the source of light. He doesn't just reflect God's glory. He is the source of it. When we see Jesus Christ, we see the very glory of God Himself. I think in making this statement, the author might have had in mind Exodus 34. Exodus 34 is the story of Moses coming down the mountain with the tablets of the law. And um, Exodus 34 says that Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. And it goes on to say that they actually had to put a veil over Moses' face until it stopped glowing. But what was Moses doing there? He was reflecting the glory of God, right? He wasn't the source of it. His face was reflecting it. Jesus, on the other hand, is the source of glory. He is the radiance of the glory of God, not merely a reflection. We see this in the New Testament, two particular spots. Uh, The first being the transfiguration. Remember when Jesus takes Peter and James and John up the mountain of transfiguration and his humanity is, is pulled back like, like robes, and they see Jesus Christ in his glory as the eternal Son of God. Um, and and uh they're astonished by what they see. And Peter wants to build a, a tent so they can live there, <laughs> you know, on top of this mountain. Or in the beginning of the book of Revelation, John uh the 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 disciple John hears his voice called. And he turns around, and he sees Jesus Christ in his glory. And he writes, "...I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters." In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. John saw the glory of God himself when he saw the glorified Jesus Christ there in the beginning of the book of Revelation. Jesus Christ is the full revelation Of the glory of God. He is the radiance of the glory of God. The author of Hebrews also says Jesus is the exact imprint of his nature. And again, we want to ask, what does that mean? What does the author mean by this statement? The word imprint has an interesting history in Greek culture and literature. It was generally used in relation to the reproduction of coins, So metal was heated up and poured into a cast or a mold and then stamped with the image of usually an emperor. And so the author of Hebrews draws upon that imagery to say that Jesus Christ is the exact representation, not reproduction, but representation of God's being. The Son of God bears the very stamp of God's nature. He is the embodiment of God. God's full being, His full nature, all His glorious attributes, His glory, His holiness, His goodness, His mercy, His love, His grace, His justice, His wrath, His patience, His self-sufficiency, His omnipotence, all that God is, is made manifest in Jesus Christ so that it can be said that to see the Son is to see the Father. To know the Son is to know the Father. Jesus is the exact imprint of the nature of God. That word nature would become so essential to the early church as they were developing uh, Christian theology, particularly as they were wrestling with the very person of Jesus Christ as the God-man. And the author of Hebrews uses that word nature to simply drive home his point that Jesus is, again, the superior the superior revelation of God. Again, to see and know Jesus is to see and know God. To Again, as Kent Hughes says, to know just what the God of the universe is like. To know what he thinks, to know how he talks, to know how he relates to his people. God has spoken in his Son, and Jesus Christ is the ultimate communication, his final word. And so again, when Jesus Christ was revealed in history as God in the flesh, when the glory of God itself came and walked and dwelt among us, when the exact imprint of the nature of God was shown forth in human history... We have in Him the fullness of God, the fullness of God's will and His plan of salvation, the fullness of everything the Old Testament pointed towards revealed before our very eyes. So what more could God say to us? Jesus Christ is the full revelation of God to us, His people. There's one more phrase here in these opening verses of Hebrews that I want us to consider today and that is in verse 3 after making purification for sins he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high now the author of Hebrews is going to spend quite a bit of time on this idea a little later on in the book so we'll talk about this a little more uh, in the coming weeks and months but it's worth our attention this morning as well because what is this other than the gospel? Here in the opening verses of this book, we have a God, a God who has spoken to us, which in and of itself is quite amazing. I hope, I hope as God's people we never take that for granted, that the infinite holy God would condescend to us and reveal himself to us. We are nothing more than creatures formed from dust, the Holy God would make Himself known to us, that He would speak to us. That, in and of itself, is amazing. The infinite God would reveal Himself in real time and in real history, both in His written Word, the Holy Scriptures, and in the Word incarnate, Jesus Christ. And then the author of Hebrews tells us that this is also a God who has made purification for sin. And this too should not be lost in us. In the person of Jesus Christ, who is God himself, who is the exact imprint of God, the very nature of God himself in the flesh, it is he it is He, who made complete and perfect purification for our sins. Some of you may be familiar with the Roman Catholic doctrine of purgatory. Purgatory is this idea that after a Christian dies again, according to Roman Catholic theology, they have to go to a place of purging. Purgatory comes from the word purging. A place where they are purged of any remaining sin. And maybe some of you have read C.S. Lewis's A Grief Observed. This is the book he wrote after his wife died and he was wrestling with the grief of losing his wife. And it's a brutally honest book and a little scary at times (laughs) Um, but it's refreshingly honest. And there's a section in there where he wrestles with the idea of purgatory. You know, he, he was a, he was an Anglican. He was a Protestant. So he, uh, was taught that Christians, when they die, immediately go to be with Christ. And he was wrestling with this. He said, what if the Catholics have it right? You know, what if the Catholics, um, are right in believing that a person doesn't go immediately into the presence of Christ, but they have to go to purgatory where they are purged of any remaining sin. Uh, He was wrestling with this because he was just wrestling with the assurance that his wife was with Christ in glory. And I just want to say, brothers and sisters, we as Protestants do not have this wrong. Uh, If you would take those King James Bibles in the pew in front of you and look at Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 3, notice how the translators of the King James Bible translate that word purified. The King James says, when he had by himself purged our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The Greek word there can rightly be translated as purified or purged. Both mean the same thing. And I think probably the word purified is a, is probably a better way to go simply because again, the author here is drawing off the Old Testament heavily and purifying yourself was what the ceremonial washings of the Old Testament were about, the wa, the sprinkling of blood with hyssop and all that. The Old Testament talks about purification ceremonies. So I think purified is probably a better word to use, but ultimately purified purged whichever way you go they mean the same thing in their essence but why do we reject the idea of purgatory as protestants a place where we go to be purged of remaining sin because of hebrews 1 3 because jesus christ by his death on the cross has already purged our sins he has purified us there's nothing left to purge brothers and sisters For those who look to Christ in repentance and faith, the stain of our sin has already been washed away. It's already been purged by Jesus Christ at the cross. It's a once-and-done act by Christ. Hebrews will go into that a little later on as well. The once, for all time, perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ. But this is why Hebrews says that after Christ purged, or purified our sins, He sat down. By stating that Christ sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, the author of Hebrews is saying that the work of purifying us is complete. It's finished. Later on in the book of Hebrews, uh, the author will talk about the priest in the temple who made sacrifices for sins. And he makes a point to say the priest never sat down in the temple because the work of offering sacrifices was never complete. But after Christ made his sacrifice, he sat down. The work was finished. Do you want to have the assurance that you've been purified of all your sins? That you've been purged? Then simply look to Christ in faith and know that you have been purged that you have been purified that you are as we heard in last week's sermon washed white as snow because the word of god says here in hebrews chapter 1 that jesus has done it all for us already and if christ has done it then we know that it's a complete and eternal work who uh, we who are looking to jesus in faith are washed clean, purged, purified forever. It's finished. Let me close with this. Most of us today, probably all of us, in fact, most definitely all of us, are not in the situation that the original audience of Hebrews was in. None of us are in that exact situation of being Jewish converts to Christianity now facing persecution. Uh, not like these Jewish Christians faced in the first century at least. But while our situation today in the 21st century uh, is a little different, I would venture to say that in many ways we are faced with, in its essence, the same temptation. What is the temptation they were faced with? The temptation to return to to go back, to return to our former lives, our former religions, if you will, to abandon Christ, to abandon the true gospel. And this plays out in a variety of ways, particularly as our culture in the West is shifting into what has been called by many a post-Christian, really an anti-Christian culture. It's becoming less and less acceptable to be a biblical Christian in our day and age, Culture is increasingly hostile to historical, biblical Christianity. They see it as intolerant, as hateful, even crass. And it puts pressure on the church to abandon Christ. To go back, if you will, to who you were before the Holy Spirit raised you to new life in Jesus Christ. You know, maybe some of you came to Christ later on in life. Uh, and in coming to Christ, you experienced a major change in your lifestyle. Maybe you had to stop doing things you loved to do before because uh, you know that it does not glorify God. Maybe you had to, um, unfortunately, stop being around certain people because uh, they tempted you too often to go back, to turn away from Christ. And I'm sure for you, that draw is still there. It's something you probably have to wrestle and fight against day in and day out. The temptation to go back is always tugging at you. Maybe some of you have a particular sin that you've been battling, a sin that for so long has has gripped you, you feel like, uh, you feel that draw to go back, to give in to its temptation, to give up your fight against that particular sin because the sin, the fight, is just too hard. That's a temptation to go back, to turn away from Christ. This draw for us to go back plays out in so many ways, both in our personal lives as Christians and in our lives collectively as the church. And that's why the book of Hebrews is for us today. It's a book, a sermon, that reminds us that although the temptation to go back may be strong, alluring to us, going back would not bring us the satisfaction, the fullness, the completeness that we gain in Jesus Christ. Because Christ is superior to all things in heaven and on earth. Jesus Christ is better he is better than whatever is tempting us. And to know Him, to have fellowship with Him, to be united to Him is to be united to God Himself, is to know God Himself, is to have fellowship with God Himself. And so the plea of the author of Hebrews is do not go back. You know, for those Jewish Christians at the time, Going back may have seemed like a better choice, the road of least resistance. But if you know your history, you know just a few years later, 70 A.D., Emperor Titus would seize the city of Jerusalem. He would, in effect, burn it to the ground. And the temple would be utterly destroyed. And you can read the Jewish historians like Josephus as they recount the siege of Jerusalem, the suffering that the Jews would go through was likened to Judgment Day. So while going back may have been an easier thing to do in that moment when the author of Hebrews was preaching this sermon, ultimately going back would have been far worse for those Jewish Christians. And it's the same for us, brothers and sisters. If you claim to know Christ, and yet you ultimately abandon the true gospel. While temporarily in this life it may seem like a good decision, a better option, the path of least resistance, ultimately it leads to eternal destruction. If we as the church go back, if we as the church abandon the gospel like so many churches have already, we may win the approval of culture, of the society around us, but ultimately, it will cost us our souls. So my prayer is that you and I and our whole church would be like the Apostle Peter in John chapter 6. Remember after Jesus feeds the 5,000 and all these people begin following him. John calls them disciples. <laughs> and uh, Jesus begins to say, I am the bread of life. And John writes that many... People, many of these so-called disciples began to abandon Jesus because they did not like his claim to be the one who gave eternal life. Uh, John writes, many of these, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. John writes, Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and come and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And so my prayer is that when we as individuals and we as a church are faced with the temptation to go back, to abandon Christ, that we would be like Peter. And our answer to that temptation would be, to whom shall we go? Christ is the word of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that Jesus is the Holy One of God.